Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke as we conclude our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain here in Luke chapter 6. This morning we'll begin in verse 43 and work through verse 49. You'll find that on page 863 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take that Bible there in the pew rack. It's our gift to you that God may continue to speak to you through it. And so we find ourselves here as Jesus winds up His incredible sermon, as Luke records, as He preaches to the gathered disciples up on this plain after spending a night in prayer. May He bless us as we consider it. Luke 6, verse 43, please hear now. The Word of God. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes plucked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the stream broke against it. Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Our Father, we're thankful for this time this morning to gather together as your people. We're thankful for an opportunity to join our voices together and to sing of your praise. You are worthy of our heart's affection. You are worthy of our mouth's adoration and praise. And we thank you now for an opportunity to sit under your word, that we as your people might submit to it, that you might teach us through it. You might show yourself to us. How we long to see God through his word. We believe you are here by your spirit. We believe you delight in glorifying yourself for the display of your majesty and for the good of your people. And so we pray this morning with united hearts, according to your will, O Father, honor yourself through your word that your people might be made more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A young woman was recently walking alone in the evening in the city where she happened upon a homeless couple who asked her for some money. They were hungry. Instead of giving them some money, she took them to a restaurant and bought them a meal. And when they were finished with the meal, they looked at her and they they asked for $15 so that they might find a room. She records her reaction by writing, I'm a young single single woman walking through the city at night. I didn't have to stop and go out of my way to do anything for them in the first place. Now they're asking for more. Someone else can help them. And so she said no, and she walked on by. But she did not get very far. 
until the Lord began to speak to her in her heart as she recalled a sermon that her pastor had originally preached from Luke chapter 6. When our Lord says, from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. She began to have a spiritual struggle. In fact, she says, I I sat right down there on the curb to have a conversation with God. to, To wrestle with what was going on in my heart. Do these people even care that I'm going out of my way and helping them? Are they even telling me the truth? But then she realized it didn't really matter. God had told her to give. And she was to obey. And so she opened her purse to see how much she had left. Interestingly enough, she had $15. She caught up to them and gave them the money and explained to them why she was helping and that she was doing this in obedience to her Lord. She actually found out that they sometimes attend her church. And she was able to actually encourage them. And to speak to them of Christ. It was a wonderful opportunity to witness to her Lord. An opportunity for fellowship. She concludes by writing, The real proof of our discipleship is not whether we hear what Jesus has to say, but whether we actually do the things He tells us to do. We are here, as I mentioned, finishing up our five weeks in the Sermon on the Plain. It's very similar, as we know, to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Of course, it's much shorter than Matthew's account. It may be the same sermon. It may be a similar sermon preached on a different occasion. We're not exactly sure. But in this sermon, Jesus calls those who want to be his disciples together and says, Okay, I'm, I'm starting a kingdom. You should understand this. I brought the kingdom of God. And, and if you want to be my disciples, you want to live in this kingdom, you should know some things. You should know that, that my disciples, they don't seek the things that the world seeks. They're not after money and comfort and security and fame. In fact, you should know that my disciples will be persecuted. And when they are persecuted, they should actually consider themselves blessed. In fact, they should rejoice and leap for joy for great is their reward in heaven. And by the way, when you're being persecuted, you should respond to those who would do this by loving them. You should do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. You should love your enemies. And you certainly should not go around condemning and judging. No, you should rather be forgiving. You should be merciful, for your Father in heaven is merciful. And he lays out for them what the the community of faith looks like, what the kingdom of God looks like. And then we come here, and he ends his sermon with two parables. We might call the first the parable of the fruit and the second the parable of the flood. In the first, there are two trees, two fruit trees. And Jesus, I think, is asking as he ends his message is, what kind of tree are you? What kind of person are you? And then he talks about the parable of the flood. And there, there are two houses. And this time he asks, what is your foundation? What are you building your life upon? It seems to Jesus that there are two options. You are either with Jesus or you are not with Jesus. And he is calling for us to begin to discern whom we are. And I think this discernment is somewhat tricky. It's because both groups you're going to notice are going to look very similar. Like both trees have fruit. It's not one tree is dead or dying and the other one's very fruitful. Both are fruitful trees. And the two homes look the same. The only difference that you can find is, is what's unseen. It's what is hidden, what's below the surface. And so when we look at, at this, this call for discernment in Jesus' uh, sermon, we should understand that he's not contrasting the, the moral people with the immoral people, if you will. He's not contrasting, you know, the good church-going people and the, the bad people who are sleeping this morning, right? That's not what he's doing at all. He is rather saying that there are, is such a thing as true Christians and counterfeit Christians. In fact, you know, look at verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? 
See, both groups call Him Lord. Both believe that He is so. Both hear His Word, just as you are doing now. And yet some will be totally surprised when they stand before the Lord and they find out that they are counterfeit. That they are false Christians. In, in Matthew's account, he says that the wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction. And many find it. The reality is there are many who think they are Christians but are not. And Jesus ends his sermon with a rather sobering warning. So I think you would do well as we begin to work our way through this text is not to sit sit where you are and and think, you know, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to listen to this. Right? Come on, Stephen, preach to them. I think there's a word here for you. There's a word here for me. I think it's helpful for us, even though it may be uncomfortable, to periodically examine our own lives to see if we are playing a game or we are truly following the Lord. I need to hear this, and you need to hear this, because it's possible to be self-deceived with the most important reality in your life. And so, you know what what I'd like to do before we begin to work in this text? I'm going to invite you to pray silently to the Lord. And ask God to give you a heart to hear His Word today. That all of us would sit under it and say, God, teach me and you help me understand who I am. Am I playing a game or am I truly following Christ? So let's pray together. Father, the psalmist once prayed, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my ways. Will you not do that even now? We're thankful for this word, though difficult it may be to hear. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, consider with me the parable of the fruit, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The application in verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Jesus tells us, a little botany lesson to begin with, right? The, 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 the fruit a tree produces coincides with the type of tree it is. All right? We're all following, right? This is pretty simple, isn't it? Right? There's a law that you're going to bear, the tree bears fruit according to its kind. So figs and grapes, you don't get those from thorn bushes and bramble bushes. In fact, you want to know how, what type of tree a tree happens to be. Of course, you could look at its leaves, I trust, and look at its bark or what, what have you. But the most easiest way, isn't it, is to look at what type of fruit it's bearing. And then you can determine what type of tree it is. Now, Jesus applies this to our lives, and he says that your deeds and your works and and your words show you what type of person you are. That you are going to produce that which is according to your nature and not something else. And, and as obvious as this is, I think there, there's actually, it's helpful for us to be reminded of this because there's a myth in our, our culture, in our land, that we're all good people who sometimes do bad things, right? And we hear this all the time. And people will acknowledge sin, they'll acknowledge that someone did something wrong, but they'll, they'll say, well, you know, but really down deep, they're, they're good. 
right? Nobody's perfect. Down at the roots, they're, they're, they're a good person. And we see this on the news all the time. You just watch the news and someone will do something awful and someone who knows them will say, I know he beat the kids, but he's really good. He's a really good person. And Jesus is coming along and say, no, he's not. He's a bad person. Or as he puts it here, and we're very uncomfortable with these words, aren't we? He is a evil person, he says in verse 46. That he is actually going to act according to his nature. Jesus says a good tree can't bear bad fruit. It doesn't make sense. You would not go to a tree and say, well, this is a, a wonderful apple tree. And, and, and someone would say, well, what, what, what makes it wonderful? Does it produce a lot of apples? No, no, it's most, they're all poisonous. Sometimes it produces a grenade every once in a while that explodes. But it's a really good tree. It's a good apple tree. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus says. No, you're going to determine whether one's good or bad by the, the actions in which they do. So if someone lies or steals or greedy or is angry, you know, the, you know people you, you don't want to cross, people that dishonor. And yet we know these people and, and still we have this tendency, what well, they're just really good though. I know somewhere down there. If they just have better education, if they maybe some government intervention or something, we, we can get that goodness out of them. I saw this in youth ministry all the time. I was in youth ministry for about 10 years, and uh, probably once a year, maybe twice a year, I would talk to a girl who was, who was dating a boy. And she would t- it was the same story. Well, tell me about this boy. Well, he yells at me sometimes, and, and he gets drunk, and, and uh, he wants to do things with me physically that I, I know we shouldn't do. But he's a total sweetheart, right? He, he's just a wonderful guy. And he's not. He's a bad guy. This is what Jesus says. There are good people and there are bad people. There are good people and there are evil people. And Christ explains to us that we do what we do because that's who we are. In fact, you see it comes from our heart. You see that in verse 45? The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. It comes from our heart. Jesus explains that sin comes from our core. Our heart, or we might call in biblical language, our sin nature. This is why we naturally sin. This, I didn't, never had to teach my children to sin. They, they know it rather well. They came out sinning. And it's according to our nature. And so we don't, we're, we're not sinners because we sin, right? A, a, a tree is not an apple tree because it produces apples. It produces apples because it is an apple tree. It's an apple tree and therefore produces apples. So we are, are, we sin because we are sinners. It is in our nature. We bear fruit according to our nature. The fruit that we have shows us what kind of nature we have. And so I believe Jesus is here as he ends his sermon ex- calling for us to examine our lives. What do our actions say about us? Jesus calls for us to study ourselves. Do you see godly fruit in your life? I think you perhaps have no better place to look than the fruit of the Spirit. Do you find yourself to be a loving person? Do you, do you love others more than yourself? Do you sacrifice? Do you love even your enemies? Are you a joyful person? Are, are you uh, joyful even in hard and difficult times? Are you a peaceful person? Do you trust the Lord in the midst of anxiety? Do you give Him your fears? Are you patient? Are you waiting on the Lord? Are you content? Are you kind and good? Do you go out of your way to make life better for others? Are you faithful? You say what you mean. Do you keep your word? Are you gentle? Do you give soft replies to harsh criticism? Are you self-controlled when it comes to temptation? A good tree bears good fruit. The primary evidence of this, this fruit, evidently, is what we say. You notice how he ends this parable at the end of verse 45? 
He says, for out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. Evidently, this seems to be the first fruit we should look at. Some have said that the mouth is the sound system of the heart. That the words only amplify what's in your heart. And so angry words come from a murderer's heart. And complaining words come from an envious heart. And judgmental words come from a self-righteous heart. The mouth overflows the heart. And so Jesus says, examine your words to see what kind of tree you are. See what kind of person you are. Examine what you say and how you say it. And we, we should know that we always say what, what's according to our character. Right? Again, we, we have this saying, we'll say something ugly, and then we'll come back later, and we'll say, well, I didn't mean that. But of course, that's not true. You did mean it. You, you should stop saying, I didn't mean that. You, you say what you mean. Now, you may wish you had not s- said it, and you may not mean it right at this time, but when you said it, you meant it, and you should own up to it. The reason we say, I didn't mean it, so that we don't have to deal with what's going on in our heart. So we don't have to repent. Right? I didn't mean it, therefore I'm off the hook. Right? It, it wasn't me who said it. It was something bizarre that happened. And certainly I did not mean what I just said. And therefore I don't have to deal with how that came out from me. Where that came from. I don't have to repent of that. And Jesus says, no, wait a second. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The mouth is the overflow of the heart. Or as Paul Tripp put it, The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasion for our hearts to reveal themselves in words. Or perhaps the brother of our Lord James put it no better. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. And so Jesus says, examine your words. And I, I think probably uh, one way we could examine to see if what, what kind of bad words that come out of our mouth, that would be an indication. But also there should be the presence of, of good things that are coming out of our mouth. Allegra and I have, have recently picked up this little pamphlet uh, j- written by J.C. Ryle, A Call to Prayer. He's a favorite theologian of mine from the 19th century. And I, I thought I would just read you a, a portion of this, if this is okay, as we consider the words that come out of our mouth. And I, when I was in seminary, I was told never, ever do this. But um, I'm going to do it anyways. We'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> I ask again whether you pray, because a habit of prayer is one of the surest measures of a true Christian. The Lord Jesus, when he quickens them, gives them a voice and a tongue and says to them, Be dumb no more. God has no dumb children. It is as much part of their new nature to pray as it is of a child to cry. They see their need of mercy and grace. They feel their emptiness and weakness. They can do, cannot do otherwise than they do. They must pray. Therefore, not praying is a clear proof that a man is not yet a true Christian. He cannot really feel his sins. He cannot love God. He cannot feel himself a debtor to Christ. He cannot long after holiness. He cannot desire heaven. He has yet to be born again. He has yet to be made a new creature. He may boast confidently of election, grace, faith, hope, and knowledge, and deceive ignorant people, but you may rest assured it is all in vain talk if he does not pray. A man may preach from false motives. A man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works, and yet be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is in earnest. This is the point we want to bring you to. We want to know that you pray. Your views of doctrine may be correct. Your love of Protestantism may be warm and unmistakable. But still, this may be nothing more than head knowledge and party spirit. 
We want to know whether you are actually acquainted with the throne of grace and whether you can speak to God as well as speak about God. Do you wish to find out whether you are a true Christian? Then rest assured, my question is of very first importance. Do you pray? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Christ invites us to examine our lives. And what if you examine your life and you see, well, I, I, see, I see bad fruit. I don't pray. In fact, my words do not commend me. Well, that may mean one of two things, I believe. It may mean that you need to be born again. You see, everyone needs a new nature. And I think this is important for us to understand because the solution to bad works is not to change our behavior. The solution is to be regenerated. It is to be transformed. God is not interested in making you a better person. He is interested in making you a new person. And quite often people try to change their actions without a new heart. And it's not going to work. You can't do it. You're going to do what's according to your nature. What has to happen is you need to uproot the tree and throw it out. And God will replant us in Christ and there will be a whole new tree. A whole new creation in Jesus, a new heart, a new mind, a new will, a new emotions, new appetites, new pleasures, a new person. This is what God will do in our lives. He will cause us to be born again. He will take us from spiritual death and give us spiritual life. And He will change our nature. All religions work the other way. They work from the outside in. They say, do these things and God will bless you. Act this way and you will receive God's favor upon you. And sometimes we as Christians spill into that mindset and we see someone in sin says, well, hey, you have to stop living with this person or you have to stop doing this or you need to start doing that. When all the while they don't know God and they have not been changed by him. Christianity rather goes from the inside out. Once he changes us, then we are empowered to live in a way that honors him. Which is why, by the way, that you... Typically, when you come to service here on Sunday mornings, you'll, you'll never get, here are the four steps to whatever. Here, you know, here are the seven steps to a happy life or the three steps to manage your debt or, or whatever it is. And one of the reasons you don't get that is Jesus never gave us that. But the other reason is that the issue is not the behavior. The issue is coming to know Jesus and falling in love with Jesus and wanting to follow Jesus more carefully. And I tell you, once you begin to do that, once he begins to transform you and change you, your life will fundamentally change. You will become a different person with different behaviors and different actions and different desires and different wills. There are no four steps. There's two steps. It is to believe in Jesus and follow him. Those are your steps. That solves all your problems. And I know that is very, very simple. And I don't want to minimize the problems that you have. But fundamentally, it is about coming to Christ. So I tell you, if you have bad fruit, don't worry about the fruit. The fruit's not the problem. Your nature is. As Jesus said, you are evil. I know that's startling, but it's God's word. And every single one of us was at one time evil. I was evil. I have about 20 years to prove it. And yet he has changed me. And the only way I can say today, and the only way my brothers and sisters can say today, is I am good. It's not because we tried hard, but because God changed us. Everyone needs a new nature. Give your sin to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus, and he will make you good. Place your faith in him. Follow him. 
and he will change you. Everyone needs a new nature, but everyone needs to grow. And uh, we should understand that though we are in Christ and, and, and have been changed by Christ, there still remains some old corruption in us. And we need to keep putting to death these works. Paul says, mortify the desires of your flesh. Kill it. Crucify it. Attack it. Ask God to replace those desires. And when you bear rotten fruit, take it to Jesus. You know, so often we do something bad and then we run from Jesus and we sequester ourselves from Jesus until we forget the pain of that sin. Well, that doesn't lead to any transformation. That doesn't lead to growth. It is only when in the midst of sin we can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look what I've done. Look what I've done. And you know what he'll say to you? I forgive you. I love you. Now let's work. Let's get better. And it's only, friends, when you and I begin to feel the forgiveness and mercy of God will we become motivated to conquer the sin in our life. But if you're constantly running away from God in the midst of your sin, you will never experience the transforming power of His grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's only when you come to Him in repentance and sorrow and brokenness that He will pour out His mercy upon you, which will motivate you to want to bear good fruit for His great glory. We need to grow. I wonder, are you growing? Are you making strides as a Christian, conquering sin, growing in righteousness? We, we are called to grow. We, we grow through labor. It's hard to do this. And it's much easier to turn on the TV than it is to pray, isn't it? It's much easier to, to sleep in than it is to open the Bible and maybe memorize Scripture. And we want our life to be easy, and we live in a very affluent world, and it just caters to this desire to want to be comfortable, and we don't want to have to do hard work, and we won't change unless we actually begin to do that hard work. We won't change as long as we're seeking our own comfort. In preparing this sermon, I, I came across an article which I found interesting about uh, how silk is made. And silk is made from a tiny silkworm which is born out of a tiny black egg. And this worm eats the mulberry leaves on a mulberry tree constantly for the first six weeks of its life. It grows to be about four in, three inches, and then it climbs out on a limb, and it begins a three-day process of spinning a white cocoon. When that cocoon is unwound, there is one continuous silk thread measuring over a half a mile. Cocoons are harvested by dropping them into boiling water when the silk is unwound. This harvesting of silk began in northern China, where silk garments were made uh, 2,000 years before Christ. It was a secret for millennia. Perhaps you've heard of the Silk Road, and they're wondering, how, how are they making this fabric? It wasn't until the 3rd century A.D. where the secret was unveiled. The legend has it that the first silk was discovered by a Chinese empress who was sitting under a mulberry tree when a cocoon fell into her hot tea as she watched the cocoon uncoil. And it has to uncoil. You can't wait till the moth breaks out because if the moth breaks out, it will destroy the cocoon and all you'll have is a bunch of broken shards that are useless. So in order to keep the moth from uh, maturing, silk farmers have discovered that if you steam the cocoon, that, that they have found that the comfort and the warmth from a steam actually stunts the growth process. And the worm never fully matures into an adult, never finishes the cocoon, never breaks free. I wonder if there's a lesson there for us. I wonder how many of us have never really fully matured as Christians. 
I wonder if us just we just like the warmth and the comfort and we're not willing to do the struggle. I wonder if us we seek the comfort in this life and not diligent in pursuing the Lord and seeking to bear fruit for His glory and we're content with meager fruitfulness. What kind of fruit do you see, brothers and sisters? What kind of fruit do you want? May God cause us to grow. May God cause us to repent that we might receive His mercy. Well, the second parable Jesus gives us is the parable of the flood. It's here in verse 46 when Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I want you to notice who Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing those who understand him as Lord. These are people who profess Christ. You would walk up to someone like this and say, Are you a Christian? And they say, Yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Jesus is Lord. Right? So they know Jesus as Lord. In fact, when they call him Lord, Lord is the, uh, in the Greek, is the Greek uh, word that they would use for the name of God, Yahweh. And so when someone called Jesus Lord in this time, they were saying, Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. I have strong faith in Jesus. And you notice they call Him Lord, Lord. So they're not only orthodox, but they're also fervent in their dedication to Jesus. When you're emotionally drawn to someone in the biblical days, you would actually repeat their name. For instance, when David mourns over the death of his son, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Or when God calls the prophet from the burning bush, Moses, Moses, or stays the patriarch's hand, Abraham, Abraham, he calls, or attempts to direct the misguided, Martha, Martha, or even on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, what Jesus is referring to when he says people call him Lord, Lord, these are the people who are not ashamed of Jesus. They don't lower their voice when they speak about Jesus. These are the people who are, uh, are emotionally involved in Jesus. These are the people who, who weep at the worship services and, 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 are, and, and are emotionally drawn to our Lord, and yet they are lost. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you, he says? It is possible, friends, that two people sitting next to each other on a Sunday morning, both hearing the Word of God, both believing the truth of God, both emotionally drawn to Jesus, and one of those two will fall in that great day in great ruin. Please don't misunderstand me. You must believe the truth. You must be emotionally drawn to Jesus. The absence of these traits proves you are not a Christian, but the presence of them does not prove you are one. There is one thing, according to our Lord, that distinguishes them. One, one difference. And it is those who, those who do what he tells them to do. You notice that, what he says there in verse 47? Everyone who comes to me and hears and does them. Right? That's what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? What Jesus is saying is your talk is cheap. Your, even your tears are cheap. If, if you're not doing what I say, you're not, I'm not your Lord. I mean, what do you do with the Lord? What do you do with the King? You obey him. You do what he tells you to do. He has authority in your life. And Jesus says, stop calling me Lord. If you will not do what I tell you to do. He is warning us, is he not, that there is a, a danger of self-deception. In fact, John would write in 1 John, one who says, I know him, but does not obey him. He is a liar. So there's a great danger in this parable. The danger of being a false Christian 
And so Jesus tells this, this parable of the flood. There are two homes, he says. Then both homes look identical, but underneath they have ra- two radically different foundations. The Christian home, if you will, the one representing the Christian has dug deep and built the foundation on the rock. He anchors the house. The false Christian has no foundation, or in Matthew's account it says he built it on the sand. Now both houses are nice. Both look identical. Both uh, are pleasant places to be in dry weather. But the reality is the flood is coming, according to our Lord. And when the flood comes, when the storm rises, the difference will be exposed. The house with the foundation will stand, the flood will slam against it, and that house will remain solid because it is well built. But the house with no foundation will be washed away. It will be led into great ruin. I don't know if you've ever been on the, to the beach. I'm sure you have been to the beach, most of us. And if you're ever brave enough to actually go in the water these days, and you just go up to your ankles, right? Um, and, and if you just are up in your ankles in water and you try, I've done this a number of times, you just try to stand there. You will not be able to stand there for long without moving your feet. Because when the waves come, you know what's happening with the sand underneath your feet? It will wash away. And you try to keep your feet from not moving and you'll be able to stand for about a minute before you'll fall over. You'll have to reposition yourself. That's what Jesus is saying is that the storm is coming and, the, and that house is going to fall with a great crash. And so how, what is the difference then? How can we tell the difference between the house that is built on the foundation and the one that has no foundation? This is a difference between immoral people and, and the, the good moral people. Should we say, oh, the no foundation people? Oh, I'm glad it's not us. Right? We're here today. We came to hear preaching today and worship God. No. That is not the difference. In fact, both people actually listen to his word. I don't know if you caught that. Look again in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word. That's the first group. Now look at verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do. Right? So both are sitting under the teaching of God's word. Both are coming to Jesus and listening to him. And Jesus says, it is not enough to listen to me. If all you do is listen to me and do not actually do what I say, I am not your Lord. That your life is only built upon the rock when you become obedient to the Lord. And people come to church throughout this land and they comfort themselves because they do so. They know the truth. But they do not live it out. And Jesus is warning them. It is a dangerous skill to be able to listen to God's word and not to do it. It will increasingly harden your heart. And some people are experts in that. They can listen and there's no impact in their life whatsoever. It reminds me of the character talkative in Pilgrim's Progress, that great allegory. When Christian and faithful are pilgriming pilgriming to the celestial city, and along comes this man who joins them named Talkative. Christian, when he's alone with faithful, warns him, saying, He talketh of prayer, of repentance, of faith, and of new birth. But he knows, but only to talk of them. He thinks that hearing and saying will make a good Christian, and thus he deceiveth his own soul. There's a danger, Bunyan wrote, to hear and to not do. In fact, there's always been this danger. You read the Bible, you start in the book of Genesis, you go all the way through. Are there not? Do you not find people who who would claim to be part of God's people, who know the truth and do not do it, are not following him? We will not see that throughout Scripture that's always uh, uh, present in the Word, that there are some who will not do what he says, even though they comfort themselves by being God's people. In fact, God would, uh, would speak to the prophet Ezekiel, saying, they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. 
This, of course, he continues into our day. I don't know if you saw the poll that came out, I don't know, about three months ago, where uh, they, they polled the, the religious um, uh, convictions of Americans, right? And about 10 years ago, uh, there were 77% Christians in America. And now, now we're down to 70% Christian. And there was great uh, lamenting and, and sackcloth and woe because we've, we're, we're losing this country. I'll tell you, if 70% of America is Christian, I will leap for joy. Right? And by the way, if you actually study the poll, they group all Christians together. If you actually control for evangelical Christians, they have been growing in the last 10 years. Roman Catholicism, mainline denominations, Eastern Orthodox has all been rapidly decreasing. But even so, they say that 70% are Christian. And there's always a poll that follows that, right? And a poll kind of says, okay, how do you live? And the poll that follows it always says that the Christians have indistinguishable lives to the non-Christians. The conclusion, therefore, is being a Christian makes no difference in your life. I wonder if there's another way to read that poll. And it is that most of those who say they are Christians are not Christians. They are counterfeit Christians. Jesus teaches that it is possible to think you are a Christian and not really be one. It is possible to be self-deceived. As James would write in chapter 1 of his epistle, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Many are deceived. And to be honest, I wonder if the church is partially to be blamed for the deception in the American churches. I wonder if in our desire to spread the gospel, we've actually misrepresented the gospel. I feel like we have told millions of people that if you pray a prayer, walk an aisle, or sign a card, or raise your hand, or bow your head, or whatever it is, your salvation is complete. All that is required is a one-time decision, one-time prayer. You just need to pray, say the incantation. We even have a name for it. We call it sinner's prayer. You just need to check that box and don't be bothered with anything else Jesus ever has for you to do. No, worry, no need to worry about being baptized. No need to worry about loving your enemies or giving sacrificially or forgiving or worshiping alongside with God's people. As long as you've prayed that prayer, you have a free pass to heaven. You could go live however you want to live. And I believe the result is that there are millions of people who are professing Christians, and perhaps some in this room, that are not saved, that are lost. Because they show no desire for God. They show no obedience to Him. I believe the church has lied to millions. I believe there are millions that are deceived. I would tell you that biblical evangelism is more about coming to grips with your sinfulness, coming to grips with a, an evil heart, an enmity towards God, coming to grips that you are self-righteous and self-focused. Everyone is born that way and realizing who Jesus is and realizing that Jesus is the Son of God who lived upon this world, did not sin, and yet died upon a cross as He took our sin upon Him and He took our punishment on Him, bearing the wrath of God for all the wrong and the evil that I have done and you have done, and three days later bodily rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and one day will return to establish His reign forever, renewing this earth, even your and my body. It is coming to grips with who Jesus is, coming to grips with the reality that Jesus is worthy of all your life, coming to grips with the fact that He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and He demands total surrender and immediate obedience. He is not some simple peasant in the meadow begging you to come to Him. He is the creator of all things. He put the stars in the sky and he calls them by name. And he demands all people 
to bow their knee to Him as King. That's who Christ is. That's what it means to be a Christian. And He invites you even today, those of you who are in rebellion to Him, and we all were once in rebellion to come to Christ and to bow to Him and to begin to live a life of obedience to Him. And if you do, if you come to Christ in that way, you, I tell you by the authority of God's Word, you will be saved. But there has to be obedience. And in case you're wondering, you're saying, wait a second, Stephen, are you telling me if I don't obey Jesus, I won't go to heaven? I'm not telling you that. Jesus is. It's exactly what he's saying. In fact, in Matthew 7 and verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who, you know what it is? Do the will of my Father in heaven. But you object to say, wait a second, I thought we're saved by grace through faith. And we are absolutely saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by our works. But I'll tell you, the faith that trusts in Jesus will produce change in your life. How do I know my children have faith in me? I see it in their actions. How do I know my wife loves me? I see it in her actions. So we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is not alone. It changes us. It gives us a desire to follow after Jesus and to obey Him. And Jesus says, this is what will save you. You must have a faith that transforms you. That faith one day will be tested. He says a storm is coming. It will be tested. Perhaps the storm is trials. Perhaps life is going well. And when life is going well, it's easy to fake it, isn't it? It's easy just to go through the motions. But the reality is life will not always go well. There'll be times when a a storm has risen. Some of you are in the storm right now. You understand that, right? You understand the shaking you feel. You understand the torrent that's swirling around you. The storm is coming. You will have trouble. Strife, turmoil, difficulty, hardship. You'll lose your job. Someone will get sick. Someone will let you down. In this world, you will have trouble. Our Lord has declared And then you will find out what kind of commitment you have to the Lord. Then you will find out if you are built upon the rock. Because when the storm comes down and and your life is floating down the river, well, you'll know. It's hard to put the house on the foundation when it's floating down the river. But sometimes the storm, for some of us, the storm will come. And we follow Jesus and want to obey Jesus. And we will find that though the storm is powerful and raging, we stand firm. We will be tested. Tested in the troubles of this life, and I trust tested in the final day. We will stand before God, Paul says. We all will stand before Him and give account. All men will be judged. God will judge your faith on that day. And was it a faith that led to obedience? Was it a true faith? Was your life built upon the sand or the rock? And there are some who will say, I trust in Jesus, and yet they will face ultimate ruin. Others, God will say to them, well done. Right? He's referring to activity. Well done, good and faithful servant. My friends, my goal today is not to scare anyone. I, to be honest, I, re- <laughs> I, I want to, you know, I don't like preaching these texts. That's what I'm wrestling with, whether to say or not. And probably the fact I don't like to preach them is sin in my own heart. So God forgive me. If I'm to be a preacher and a man called to preach his word, I need to get over that. 
But my goal is not to scare anyone. My goal is to encourage you to do what Christ has told you to do. Examine your life. Look at who you are. Consider the gracious warnings of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul said in, to the Corinthian church, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. He wrote to a church. He says, you all need to examine yourself to see whether you are truly in the faith. Are you treating Jesus as your king? Will you do what he tells you to do? Will you rejoice when you're persecuted? Will you love your enemies? Will you, will you uh, turn your back on a judgmental, condemning attitude and give and forgive? Will you not be ashamed of him? Will you follow him in baptism? Will you deny yourself? Will you take up your cross? What fruit do you bear, he says? Upon which are you trusting? There was a great Scottish preacher of old. His name was... Uh, Arthur John Gossip, and he faced a, a storm. He, he suffered, as, as many of you perhaps have, the, the tragic and untimely death of his beloved wife, and, and he was just deeply grieved. And yet his faith was strong, and upon returning to the pulpit, he met his congregation with these words. Our hearts are very frail, and there are places where the road is very steep and very lonely. But we have a wonderful God. And as Paul has put it, what can separate us from his love? Not death, he says immediately, pushing that aside at once as the most obvious of impossibilities. No, not death. For I, standing here in the roaring of the Jordan, cold to the heart with its dreadful chill, and very conscious of the terror of its rushing. I call back to you, who one day in your time will have to cross it. Be of good cheer, my friend. I feel the bottom, and it is sound. A man who built his life upon the rock. A storm came, he stood strong. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but see what Jesus says. He doesn't build your life on a rock. I don't want to read too much in the text, but I do find it interesting that he says you build your life on the rock. I believe perhaps that's even a reference to our Lord. Paul would write, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. Jesus Christ. Put your hope in Christ. Build your life upon Christ. Follow Christ in obedience as you hear his word. And when the storm comes and it pries your hand from holding on to your job or some loved one, you will be unshaken because your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. And though at times I trust it is unpleasant to hear, and Lord, it would be much easier uh, to preach to felt needs. Um, and yet uh, we often don't feel our greatest needs. And so I know you have been working in my own heart over these past couple weeks from this text, and I thank you for that. You're good to me. I pray for my friends here. I pray that you would work in their lives. I pray that they would be motivated, not by fear, but out of love, to bear fruit for your glory and for their gain. That they would labor through the power of the Spirit to bring you honor in all that they say and do. And I trust, Father, that there is 
one sitting in this room that perhaps has been in church for decades and knows the truth and is emotionally drawn to Christ and yet is lost. Of course, Father, I I know not who they are. No one here does, but you do. And I trust if you're gracious to them, you by your spirit would even convict them of that truth this very instant. Perhaps there's more than one, Father. Perhaps there are many. Help us. Help us to truly surrender all that we have and all that we are to Jesus. He is worthy of it. Worthy of all that we have and all that we are. We love you, our Lord. And we thank you for this time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.